We're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. I have never heard that song. What's wrong with me? Having a heat wave, heat, heat wave, a tropical heat wave, tropical heat wave. And before we even get into the intro, I want you to know that Lisa and I both have our computers are sitting on top of frozen ice packs, and in my it's case, true. a bag of mixed berries from Trader Joe's, frozen berries, uh, because it's so hot. I hope you will not refreeze those, but instead eat them. Oh, there'll be like a full cobbler by the time my computer's done heating them up. So I think I'll just make a biscuit topping. Um, it's indeed. I am Lisa Linky. That hilarious, beautiful woman across the computer in front of me is Misty Stinnett. We are recording remotely. Hi, we do. We're here um, to infiltrate your ear holes. Thank you. Um, it's hot and I don't have the air conditioning on because I, my air conditioning sounds like this. So um, I don't have it on. But that So means instead, that my dog- I'm in my closet going, it's hot. <laughs> my dog is panting. So if you hear somebody panting, it ain't me. Um, in fact, Missy, I've upgraded to a t-shirt. She's lying. She's lying. Lisa, Lisa doesn't have a dog. She's never had a dog. <laughs> um, here, I'm going to put the microphone. Miss uh, Zoe. Again, Zoe is Lisa's landlord. She's sniffing. I hope you can hear that. Anyway. Okay, guys, this is Go Help Yourself, a weekly self-help podcast, comedic podcast to make life suck less. My brain is pandemic brain and it's boiling. So good luck. It is a comedy self-help podcast to make life. It is also weekly. So keep your judgy to yourself. It is. It's it's actually bi-weekly. It's twice a week. I know. Bi-weekly means two things and I hate that. I know. Why? Have one that's like semi-monthly and then bi-weekly. Right? I hate hate it. And let me tell you why it makes me mad. I have a friend who has a podcast that comes out every two weeks. And we we release four times as much material because it's... We both are called... Bi-weekly. And it makes me so... So mad. He should be called by Curious Weekly, and we should be called by Weekly. I think two times a month should be called semi bi weekly. Semi bi weekly monthly. <laughs> Welcome to Go Help Yourself. This is a podcast where we read and review popular self help books and Speak then for tell yourself. You- tell you about them and then um in the hopes that you will be able to glean the life-changing and life and alter alter oh god life-altering perspectives without having to purchase or read the book now we say that knowing that we can't cover everything because if this book speaks to you please go buy the book and support the author yes If, if in some in some rare happenstance you like me are disgusted with the contents of this book don't buy the book and we've saved yourself time and money. You're welcome. Yeah. But we do this to be in service of you. Yes, a hundred percent. There are way too many self-help books out there and it is not a regulated industry. And trust me when no. I say, if you're just joining us, you want this first line of defense. You do. Uh, it is It is gnarly. <laughs> 
Christmas. It's nearly out there. In my last acting class, we dissected the famous monologue from A Few Good Men. And so when you said, you want us, I'm like, you want us on this wall. You need us on this wall. (laughs) Because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you hate that we love self-help. I just kind of went off the rails there. Sorry. It's hot and I'm losing my mind. (laughs) I'm literally in a closet. And also, you guys, I don't want to say anything, but it like, listen, it smells in here. And the only thing that's in here is you. Misty, great point. You bring up that we are recording this in the middle of the global pandemic. So we're not at our usual Fairfax Vogue studios where the audio quality is pristine. So we appreciate everybody hanging in with us. We've been getting great feedback from the the episodes that have been releasing and people are thankful. In fact, you just dropped a new bonus episode on people and they were like, what is this in my... Uh, podcast inbox and they were we've already gotten some great feedback about it because we were sharing what it was like for us yeah and so this episode that we're recording right now so um it's the end of april for us and this episode's not going to come out until i think the first week of june we have a little bit of a a backlog um for post-production because it takes a while to master the episodes and upload them and and read them and now that we're recording like in a pandemic remotely, it's added another like layer for us. Yeah. But the reason we say that, uh, the reason I bring that up is twofold. So the first is that the world could look really different from the time we're recording this episode. There could be zombies. I 100% guarantee or your money back. There's There are zombies out there now. <laughs> All your money back that you paid for this episode. <laughs> The second reason that we bring that up is that bonus episode that aired, I think it was at this point, like five weeks ago. You can see it. It says bonus self-help in the time of coronavirus. We we just wanted to talk about what what tools. We've been recording this podcast for 18 months. We have read, mm-hmm. uh, I think today's book is like book 72, give or take, because we've had a few two-parters. Um, God help us. But what tools are actually worked for us? And what's getting yeah. us, what is helping us cope uh, in, in these hard moments? So if you want to check that out, uh, highly, highly recommend my own, <laughs> my own and Lisa's own uh, episode. You're welcome. So <laughs> every now and then, every now and then we get the joy for all the shade that we throw at some of the self-help books. Every now and then we have the joy of reading an incredible book and you that got one today. Us and feels relevant. And I have one today. I am so excited to bring to you the New York Times bestseller, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. It Woo! was just published. Woo! It was just published on March 10th of 2020 this year. So it is hot off the press. I mean, at the time of this recording, this book is just six weeks into the world. It was also Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine book club pick of April of this year. So okay. it's technically a memoir, but it's all about how to help yourself and expand your mind and filled with stories of Glennon's own journey coming into her most authentic self. Mm-hmm. So here are a few quotes about the book before we dive in. Some books shake you by the shoulder while others steal your heart. In Untamed, Glennon does both at the exact same time. And that quote is from Brene Brown. She grabs your heart, Pulls it out of your chest, shakes it, and then shoves it through your mouth back into its place. Yeah. And then you poop it out and you eat yep. it for dinner. And that is a direct quote from Brene Brown. We call that completing the stress cycle. <laughs> that is completing the stress cycle. 
<laughs> Thank you. Untamed will liberate women emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It is phenomenal. That is a quote from Elizabeth Gilbert. Okay. Listen, she's doing a lot of humble brags on the back of her book. No, she's she's not. This was from the Amazon page that her publishers put out. Uh, and People, People says... Doyle might just be the patron saint of female empowerment. And I don't disagree after. All right. All right. Okay. So here, here is Glennon's tease of the book from her website, momastery.com. So it sounds like monastery, but it is with an M like a mom. Very clever. When women learn to please, we forget who we are. When women lose themselves, the world loses its way. We do not need any more selfless women. What we need right now is more women who are full of themselves. A woman who is full of only herself no longer internalizes the world's memos and expectations. A woman who is full of herself knows and trusts herself enough to say and do what must be done and lets the rest burn. This is how you find yourself. So that's the tease of the book. I love it. Uh, Currently, the hardcover is $16.74. Paperback is $54.99, to which I say, what? To which I say, bitch. <laughs> I think um, probably because the um, supply chain is so fucked up right now with the pandemic that yeah. it's probably a very hard to get a paperback right now. But isn't a hardcover always a little more coveted than a, paper, a pop I think things are different now. It used to be that hardcover came out and then paper paperback came out like six, eight, ten months later. Yeah. So you would segment out your market like that. But now I think... Um, it just depends on. I think. I think the. I, I think the supply chain is just fucked up right now. Yeah, for but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in general desirability. Wouldn't you always rather have a hardcover than a paperback? As like a gift? No, because most people would not prefer to buy a hardcover for themselves that they're going to read once. They would prefer to pay less for a paperback. Sure. Um, the audiobook. The audiobook is also twenty two dollars and five cents, or one credit, which is about fifteen bucks on Audible. And then on the Overdrive app, it's free, but it has like a thirty eight week wait list right now. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a little bit about Glennon from her website, Momastery com. Glennon Doyle is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Untamed, and Love Warrior. Love Warrior was an Oprah's book club selection, as well as the New York Times bestseller, Carry On Warrior. An activist and thought leader, Glennon is the founder and president of Together Rising, an all-women-led nonprofit organization that has revolutionized grassroots philanthropy, raising over $25 million for women, families, and children in crisis. She lives in Florida with her wife and three children. And then my own note is that Momastery is the online community and blog she created in 2009 that really started to get her recognized as a writer. Mm -hmm. And it's how she got her first book deal. So my first impressions of the book is it is so beautiful. The cover is like multicolored and glittery and it would make a lovely gift or look really good on a bookshelf. Um, and we always put, we always post a, a picture of the cover of the books on our Instagram page at Go Help Yourself Podcast on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um and on our blog at GoHelpYourselfPodcast.com. So it's 352 pages, or in my case, I listen to the audiobook, and it's eight hours and 22 minutes. Mm, and that's a breeze. Uh, 
<laughs> right. It's a breeze after like the the nonstop 29-hour marathon of Can't Hurt Me. Uh, just kidding. That was only like 15 or 16 hours. Uh, she reads it. And once I got used to her voice, I liked it just fine. Like at first I was like, oh, this is her voice. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. And then I got used to it and I was like, okay, this is cool. Because she really does a beautiful dramatic reading of it. Um, when I first started listening to it, I could not put it down. I absolutely tore through this book. I completely loved it. I was trying to find more time in the day to listen to it or more excuses to listen to it. Um, and something to note about me interpreting this book, this is my first time ever reading Glennon Doyle. And after listening to this book, I can't imagine what it must be like hearing this book after reading her other books as they came out. So yeah, this is I a read very- Love Warrior. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm really curious to hear your opinion as we go. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I will give you some context in just a minute. Um, so I'm really coming to her brand new at this stage in her life, which is important context. By the way, on her website, mamastery.com, she encourages everyone to support independent bookstores and has a list of bookstores in every state that are carrying copies of Untamed. And she includes links to order the book right next to this list. So do that if you're buying a physical copy copy, which I loved because it's like, it would be so easy for her to be like, just go to Amazon and make it a number one Amazon bestseller, which it already is, mm -hmm. but support independent bookstores. So the book has many chapters, but three parts. Part one is caged. Part two is keys. And part three is free. And I'm not going to go chapter by chapter because there are so many, but I'm going to cover a few of the different topics that really resonated with me. And mm -hmm. I am going to start by reading you the prologue. Okay. So she starts the book with a beautiful metaphor that is a roadmap for the rest of the ideas in the book. She tells the story of how a couple of years ago, she and her wife took their daughters to the zoo. They headed to the big event, which was called the Cheetah Run. They get there and a zookeeper introduces a golden retriever named Minnie. The zookeeper explains that they raised Tabitha, the cheetah, alongside Minnie to help tame her. They're best friends, and whatever Minnie wants to do, Tabitha also wants to do. So they set up the cheetah run. An old, dusty, pink bunny stuffed animal is tied to the back of a jeep, and Minnie goes first to remind Tabitha how it's done. The, the jeep takes off. Minnie runs 100 meters after it, catches the bunny. Wow, congrats, right? Amazing. The zookeeper explains that Tabitha will also chase the pink, pink bunny 100 meters, and when she gets to the end of the run, there will be a delicious steak waiting for her. So this happens, the bunny's off, Tabitha completes the run in seconds, and mm -hmm. she hunkers down in the grass to eat her steak, and everybody, like, golf claps. But Glennon doesn't. She feels queasy. She says that the taming of Tabitha felt familiar. She thought... Day after day, this wild animal chases dirty pink bunnies down the well-worn path they cleared for her, never looking left or right, never catching that damn bunny, but settling for a store-bought steak and the distracted approval of sweaty strangers, obeying the zookeeper's every command, just like Minnie, the lab she's been trained to believe she is, unaware that if she remembered her wildness, even for just a moment, she could tear those zookeepers to shreds. 
After the run, Tabitha is put in a small fenced-in field while the zookeeper answers the crowd's questions, including one where a little girl asks if Tabitha misses the wild. The zookeeper tells her no, she was born in captivity and she's never even seen the wild. She's much safer here. As the questions went on, Glennon and her daughter noticed that, away from the zookeepers and the bunny, Tabitha's posture changed. Her head was high and she was stalking the periphery of the fence back and forth, back and forth, stopping only to stare somewhere beyond the fence like she was remembering something. She looked regal and a little scary. Glennon's daughter leaned over to her and whispered, Mommy, she turned wild again. Glennon says she wished she could have asked Tabitha what was going on in her head, and she knew what she'd tell her. She'd say, Something's off about my life. I feel restless and frustrated. I have this hunch that everything was supposed to be more beautiful than this. I imagine fenceless, wide-open savannas. I want to run and hunt and kill. I want to sleep under an ink-black silent sky filled with stars. And it's all so real, I can taste it. Then she'd look back at the cage, the only home she's ever known. She'd look back at the smiling zookeepers, the bored spectators, and the panting, bouncing, begging best friend, the lab. She'd sigh and say, I should be grateful. I have a good enough life here. It's crazy to long for what doesn't even exist. And Glennon would say, Tabitha, you are not crazy. You are a goddamn cheetah. So that is uh, how she starts the book. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? I love it oh, so much. I, I, I hate self-help. And uh, <laughs> listen, I am a conscientious objector to zoos. So the fact that, and listen, she's a great writer in that she uses metaphor wonderfully. And this is a beautiful thing. But yeah. also I'm like, it doesn't take a fucking brainiac to figure out that a fucking cheetah is not happy in a cage. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, Right. But this idea that like this cheetah longs for something else, like that's the metaphor, right? Tabitha is the metaphor. I don't know. I just feel like this, I'm going to say something a little controversial. I think that Glenn, Glennon benefits from her white female privilege while she also works to eradicate it. And I think that the followers of her, uh, followers of her monastery were like, this is fascinating when she started writing. And it was like, she was just being open and honest about her experience rather than keeping it closeted. And I, I think she was brave and courageous versus incredibly insightful. Is that, is that terrible for me to say? Um, maybe I found this book to be incredibly insightful. So now this is, this is the prologue, which is setting stuff up. And then all of the insights that she's gained about how we as women are, we have these cages around us in society and how to get wild and break free yeah. is, is, is sort of the allegory of this book. Yeah. I found it to be incredibly insightful. And by the way, so intersectional, like She's crazy intersectional, intersectional I, but than you, she used to be. Yeah. Yeah. But you are coming again, you are coming at it having read carry on warrior, right? First and I have not warrior. read that. Oh, love warrior. And she, she, in this book goes on to to talk about which parts of her other books were actual bullshit. Okay. Which is really interesting. Okay. Um, so here's here's Glennon's crazy story 
for anybody who's unfamiliar. And I was when reading the book. So my jaw was on the floor. Okay. So Glennon had released her first book telling the story of how she'd finally found happily ever after by trading her lifelong food and booze addictions for a son, a husband, and writing. She stood on stages all across the country and repeated the message to hopeful women, carry on. Life is hard, but you are a warrior. One day it will all come together for you too. Right after that first book's ink dried, she sat in a therapist's office and listened to her husband say that he'd been sleeping around since their wedding. After she woke up from fainting, she realized that the revelation of her husband's betrayal did not leave her with the despair of a wife with a broken heart, but rather the rage of a writer with a, with a broken plot. Hell hath no fury like a memoirist with a husband who just fucked up her story. She decided she would take control of the plot and would take the shit she'd been handed and spin it into gold. She started with the story's resolution in mind, a healed whole family, and worked backward from there. She doesn't know if she wrote about her story and then willed it to happen, or that it happened and then she wrote about it. But two years later, she had a dark love story and a new book called Love Warrior, all about the dramatic destruction and painstaking reconstruction of her family. So at this point, it's expected to be one of the biggest books of the year when she's telling this story. So she's now 40 years old. She's been married to her husband for 14 years, and she has a skyrocketing writing career that's partially based on her being a Christian and a mommy. She's about to launch this highly anticipated memoir about her marriage's redemption at a big book event in Chicago, and she's just figured out how to make sense of the most complicated time in her life. Like she went to her husband, handed him the copy, and said, here, I made sense of it. I made it mean something. This is why it happened. I guess you're welcome, right? So at this book event where she is uh, trying to promote this to all these librarians and publishers, a woman walks into the room and Glennon takes one look at her and falls madly in love in an instant. I do like this story. When I hear her talk about it, she goes, I stood up. I stood up out of my chair and I don't even know why I did. I just stood up. I looked And at she her. put her arms out like, it's you. Like, welcome. Like, you're <laughs> over here. And the woman just smiled at her and like came and sat down. And the woman was a former Olympic soccer player, Abby Wambach. But she didn't know that at the time. She just saw this woman and fell madly in love. She says her circumstances, career, religion, all screamed, no. But something inside her whispered, yes. Her, there she is. And she realized there was a truer and more beautiful version of her life than the one she had been living. And in order to experience that life on the outside, rather than just in her imagination, she knew she would have to forge it herself and that only she could bring it forth. And she knew it would cost her everything. She knew she would have to burn her current life to the ground. So yeah. here's a quote from her. She says, I looked hard at my faith, my friendships, my work, my sexuality, my entire life and asked, how much of this was my idea? Do I truly want any of this? Or is this what I was conditioned to want? Which of my beliefs are of my own creation and which were programmed into me? How much of who I've become is inherent and how much was just inherited? How much of the way I look and speak and behave is just how other people have trained me to look and speak and behave? How many of the things I've spent my life chasing are just dirty pink bunnies? 
Who was I before I became who the world told me to be? Over time, I walked away from my cages. I slowly built a new marriage, a new faith, a new worldview, a new purpose, a new family, and a new identity by design instead of default. From my imagination instead of my indoctrination. From my wild instead of from my training. What follows are stories about how I got caged and how I got free. So here are some of the ideas that really spoke to me. The first is about consumer culture. So in the chapter, Feel, she talks about how hard it was when she first became sober. So she struggled with bulimia from the age of 10, and then she progressed to alcoholism because she had a private way to cope with her feelings, but she also needed one in public, she says. And it got to the point where she was getting blackout drunk almost every night for years to numb her pain and her dissatisfaction with her body and her life. And it's funny, at at a speaking event where people were just lined up like crazy for her to sign her best-selling book, and she's been in Oprah's book club, someone came up to her parents and said, you must be so proud of Glennon. And they looked at this, this adoring reader and said, honestly, we're just glad she's not in jail which I thought was really amazing. So when she was 26, she became pregnant and she finally had something that she wanted more than to get wasted. She realized she actually did want to be a mother and bring this being into the world. So she started her journey to sobriety. But this meant that she lost all of her coping mechanisms and was finally feeling all of that pain she'd been trying to avoid and everything in between um, for the last decade. So someone came up to her on like day six of her being sober and said that if it felt really horrible and like she was doing everything wrong, she wasn't. It's just that being a human is hard and it's hard to feel all of your feelings. And Glennon says this was the first time that she had ever heard that feelings were for feeling. She thought the only thing she was supposed to feel was happiness and that pain was for fixing and hiding and ignoring. She thought that when life got hard, she had gone wrong somewhere and that pain was weakness and that she was supposed to suck it up. But the more she sucked it up, the more food and booze she had to suck down. She says that kind woman revealed to her that being human is not about feeling happy. It's about feeling everything. So she talks a lot about how important it is to feel pain when it comes up because life is alchemy and pain is the fire that forges you into gold. She says consumer culture promises us that we can buy our way out of pain, that the reason we're sad and angry is not because being human hurts. It's because we don't have those countertops, her thighs, these jeans. This is a clever way to run an economy, but it is no way to run a life. Consuming keeps us distracted, busy, and numb. Numbness keeps us from becoming. She says not to avoid pain, that we need it to evolve, to become, and we are all here to become, like Buddha, Moses, Jesus, and Wesley from The Princess Bride, first the pain, then the waiting, then the rising. And one of the mantras that helped her stay ho- stay sober is we can do hard things. Yeah. Like not like, oh, it's supposed to be easy, but we can do hard things. So obviously she's had a big evolution and she says that she still lives her life by faith, but that it has nothing to do with religion anymore. For her, faith is allowing, is quote, allowing the swelling and pressing inside me to direct my outward words and decisions. Because for me, God is not a being outside me. God is the fire, the nudge, the warm liquid liquid gold swelling and pressing inside me. 
She says her favorite idea of faith is a belief in the unseen order of things. So the seen is reality. It's the way things are. And unseen is the better, truer, wilder way that we can imagine. Different religions call this shalom, nirvana, heaven, peace. It's all about finding that inside of us and working to make it visible now. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I am not religious. And so to hear definitions of uh, of faith or researched back religious ideas was really interesting because I actually found this book to be quite secular. And I wasn't expecting that from like a former Christian mom blogger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so sh- she goes on to say, don't ask yourself what is right and wrong. Ask yourself what is true and beautiful. The truest, most beautiful life never offers to be the easiest one. We need to let go of the lie that it's supposed to be. Her steps to living the most true and beautiful life you can are as follows. First, honor your discontent. This is the whisper inside that says, not this. Don't dismiss it. Don't bury it. Deflect it. Deny it or blame it on someone else. Acknowledge it and honor it. Then move from not this to this instead. Call upon your imagination to tell the story you're born to tell with your life. Dream up what it would look like to have your specific version of truth and beauty come to life. Look for the blueprint you were born with, the one you might have thought stopped existing. Unearth your unseen order. Then put pen to paper. It's hard to jump to jump from dreaming to doing. So before imagination becomes three-dimensional, it usually needs to become two-dimensional, just like an architect designing a building. So you can dream up this amazing thing, but then you've got to sort of map it out and put instructions on paper. She says, we weren't meant to be cookie cutter carbon copies of one another. There is no one way to raise a family, live, love, work. We can make our own normal, throw out all the rules. We can stop asking what the world wants from us and instead ask, what do we want for our world? She says, let's look at what we've written and decide that these are not pipe dreams. These are our marching orders. These are the blueprints for our lives, our families, and the world. She says, this might take us... This might take us a lifetime, but luckily that's exactly the amount of time we have. May our dreams become our plans. I mean, is she saying anything revelatory? Well, here's the thing. This is an eight-hour audiobook that I'm trying to cover in an hour. So I'm trying to go with the bigger hitting universals, you know, about how to sort of imagine a thing. But she and her specific stories really does get into... Uh, she gives really beautiful language to a lot of the frustrations I have felt growing up as a girl and a woman and how that's constricted me. It's kind of like our last mini-sode about toxic femininity. Like you were saying, mm-hmm. oh my God, like you're so well-spoken. You know exactly what to say. Like a lot of that language I got from this book. Mm. Um, so it did feel, it's not Yes, there were some revelatory things, but it was more like, oh my God, that's how you say that. That's Mm. the language for that. Kind of like when I read Gemma Hartley's um, Harper's Bazaar article about women in the mental load. It wasn't a revelation that women have an unseen, invisible mental load in a heteronormative relationship, but the revelation was, now I have words for it. So for me, that was was the power of this book. Um, 
So this is from the chapter, Let It Burn. She Mm -hmm. says, when we let ourselves feel, our inner self transforms. When we act upon our knowing and imagination, our outer worlds transform. Living from the worlds within us will change our outer worlds. Here's the rub. Destruction is essential to construction. If we want to build the new, we must be willing to let the old burn. We must be committed to holding on to nothing but the truth. We must decide that if the truth inside us can burn a belief, a family structure, a business, a religion, an industry, it should have become ashes yesterday. Mm -hmm. At first, it's At first, it's very scary because once we feel, know, and dare to imagine more for ourselves, we cannot unfeel, unknow, or unimagine. There's no going back. We are launched into the abyss, the space between the not true enough life we're living and the truer one that exists only inside us. So we say, maybe it's safer to just stay here. Even if it's not true enough, maybe it's good enough. But good enough is what makes people drink too much and snark too much and become bitter and sick and live in quiet desperation until they lie on their deathbed and wonder what kind of woman, relationship, family, world might I have created if I'd been braver. The building of the true and beautiful means the destruction of the good enough. Rebirth means death. Holding on to what is no longer true enough is not safe. It's the riskiest move because it is the certain death of everything that was meant to be. We are only alive to the degree that we are willing to be annihilated. Mm. So this, this to me was tying back into the dance of anger that you covered on our last full book review because it feels like so much of the time we are not expressing our anger or our needs or what we want because we are trying so desperately to preserve a relationship structure or a Mm -hmm. dynamic or a home or whatever. And we, this, this is really complimentary to that because it's like, yeah, you might have to let things burn to the ground to be truly authentic to yourself. It also reminds me of Pima's children's um, When Things Fall Apart. Yeah, which part? Just that like nothing is permanent and that it's, it can go and that we if we are attached to it, mm-hmm. that that causes pain, right? That like we can only find the, in, the happiness in the moment and like the peace in the moment if we are willing to let things go. Yes, and, and Glennon really talks about how she is always going to try and honor the person she is in that moment and the the person that she's going to continue to become. So she's saying like, if I have to let things burn a thousand times to keep becoming who I'm supposed to become, I'm going to do that, Mm -hmm. which is really scary because that means like, that's a lot of work and it might be a lot of starting over and it might be that. But also, I personally know the liberation of going from, okay, I'm, I'm, squashing a part of myself down to try to preserve something and then the liberation of going wow I'm now fully my authentic self and yeah. it's it's painful and incredible at the same time so that really spoke to me so here are her thoughts on the myth that women have to be selfless Mm -hmm. Glennon talks a lot about how she burned the memos the world had written for her, that the best part of a woman was to lose herself in service to the ones that she loves. I've seen what happens in the world and in our relationships when women stay numb, quiet, obedient, and small. 
Selfless women make for an efficient society, but not a beautiful, true, or just one. When women lose themselves, the world loses its way. We do not need more selfless women. What we need right now is more women who have detoxed themselves so completely from the world's expectations that they are full of nothing but themselves. What we need are women who are full of themselves. A woman who is full of herself knows and trusts herself enough to say and do what must be done. She lets the rest burn. I burned the memo that responsible motherhood is martyrdom. I decided that the call of motherhood is to become a model, not a martyr. I unbecame a woman slowly dying in her children's name and became a responsible mother, one who shows her children how to to be fully alive. I burned the memo insisting that the way a family avoids brokenness is to keep its structure by any means necessary. I noticed families clinging to their original structures that were very broken indeed. I noticed other families whose structures had shifted and were healthy and vibrant. I decided that a family's wholeness or brokenness has little to do with its structure. A broken family is any family that pledges allegiance to a prescribed structure above each member's full humanity. A broken family is a family in which any member must break herself into pieces to fit in. A whole family is one in which each family member can bring her full self to the table, knowing that she will always be both held and free. I quit buying the idea that a successful marriage is one that lasts till death, even if one or both spouses are dying inside it. I became a woman who believed another would complete me when I decided I was born complete. I let burn my comfortable, cherished idea of America as a place of liberty and justice for all. I let a truer, wider perspective be born in its place, one that included the American experience of people who don't look like me. I wrote myself a new memo about what it means to have true faith. To me, faith is not a public allegiance to a set of outer beliefs, but a private surrender to the inner knowing. I went from certain and defensive to curious, wide-eyed, and awed, from closed fists to open arms, from the shallow to the deep end. The memos I've written for myself are neither right nor wrong. They are just mine. They're written in sand so that I can revise them whenever I feel, know, imagine a truer, more beautiful idea for myself. I'll be revising them until I take my last breath. Yeah. Yeah. So that to me, it's interesting. I I think that could be really revelatory to somebody who has not questioned what's expected of them in their gender role or their religion or their family structure. And I love this idea. I love this idea of like, well, wait a second. And it it, it seems basic, but it's also really progressive. Like just questioning, like, why do we do the things we do? Why does it have to be a 50 year long monogamous relationship where everybody does what society expects of them? Why can't it be, you know, something totally different? So I I really love, and her pros are just so beautiful. It reminds me of um, the four agreements. She calls them memos, but it's like the agreements that we just, we just agree to. Yeah. And it goes back to that sort of opening thing where she says, well, how, how many of these ideas are actually mine? How many of these beliefs are mine? And how many were just sort of like passed down to me? And that's, that is something that I've never, that's like some see in the matrix shit there. It's like, that's something I haven't really questioned is like, what do I actually feel and believe versus what I've just been taught to believe. So it's so tricky really and difficult because there are things that we need passed down to us that we do need to believe. Like I, you know, I don't believe that people inherently come into this planet 
wanting to do ill. But Mm -hmm. I do think that there are societal tenets that we do have to teach. You know, it's not okay to steal. You need an order. Yes. You need an ordered society, right? Right. So it's, it's, it's the, how, how do you pass along some without others? And how do you do that in a vacuum? But nobody lives in a vacuum, right? Like you see yeah. art and, and um, uh, media mirroring and reflecting and you see the, the racism and classism that exists. Like it's, it's too hard, I think, especially for young children to comprehend that. And so of course they're going to mm-hmm. pick up some stuff. It's really hard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's this interesting thing. It's like, well, can we have an ordered society without trying to exercise so much control over what women and men or any gender or non-binary or fluid is supposed to be or look like? Yeah. You know, because like the the world, the world has not (laughs) destructed itself yet. As we're close, we're very close. Legal, (laughs) yeah. Well, yeah, with coronavirus, but you know, like it's it's like yes, all these things. Yeah. So anyway, speaking of those sorts of things, something that really surprised me um, was this chapter that she shares about religion and the church and their history with the anti-gay and anti-abortion movement. Yeah. What really surprised me is that the church did not have, and we're talking the evangelical church here, Yeah, did not have an anti-gay or anti-abortion stance until 30 years ago, which is, that makes sense. So I'm, I'm 32. So in my entire lifetime, this stance has been the prominent one, but I didn't realize it was so recent that this happened. So she explains well, I that- I mean, I think it makes sense, right? Because- if it wasn't out in the open in society, they didn't need to have a stance against it too. In the fifties, when nobody was gay, quote unquote, you didn't need well, to have a stance against it. Sure. Well, I'll explain. I'll explain some of the history. So in the 1970s, a few rich, powerful, white, outwardly straight men got worried about losing their right to continue racially segregating their private Christian schools and maintaining their tax exempt status. They started to feel their money and power being threatened by the civil rights movement. In order to regain control, they needed to identify an issue that would be emotional and galvanizing enough to unite and politically activate their evangelical followers for the first time. They decided to focus on abortion. Before then, a full six years after the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, the prevailing evangelical position was that life began with the baby's first breath at birth. Most evangelical leaders had been indifferent to the court's decision, and some had been cited as supporting it. But this group of powerful white men, these few, they sponsored a meeting of 15,000 pastors called the Religious Roundtable and trained their pastors how to convince their congregations to vote for anti-choice, anti-gay candidates. This is how the memo spread across America. The memo said that to be aligned with Jesus, to have family values and be moral, one must be against abortion and gay people and vote for the candidate 
that is anti-abortion and anti-gay. This is how the religious right was born. The face of the movement was the pro-life and pro-family stance of millions, but the blood running through the movement's veins was the racism and greed of a few. That is how white evangelicals became the most powerful and influential voting bloc in the United States and the fuel of the white supremacy engine. And that is how we elect leaders who abuse women, hoard money, and do all kinds of horrible and corrupt things, but who have a stance of anti-abortion and anti-gay, so we think they're synonymous with the church, as opposed to what Glennon says Jesus actually stood for, which was for immigrants and the poor. Yeah. So she actually does a really good job of destructing, uh, uh, of deconstructing. And like, destructing. <laughs> uh, a, and destructing. Let's be real. Let it burn. She brings that shit um, to the ground. Yeah. So that, that to me was really revelatory. Yeah. Um, in this sense. So, so that, and especially coming from someone who was such a prominent, Christian and really seems to know her stuff to understand why this went wrong and to put language to why I am not religious and am so repulsed by this idea of anti-abortion, anti-gay above all. It's like why, you know, you can be a wonderful person with extreme family values and be pro-abortion and you can be anti-abortion and be a terrible fucking person. So this really helped to put language to some of the things that these ideas that I was struggling with because before I couldn't separate them out. So she also has an incredible chapter on her experience as a white woman who realized that she has to unlearn racism. And I cannot recommend that chapter enough to any and all white women who are trying to be good allies and good feminists. And and something that really struck me in this chapter is... We have all, she says, we need to start talking about racism the same way we talk about misogyny. So for example, most of us are comfortable saying, I'm not a misogynist, but I have internalized misogyny in me. I have received messages about hating my body, competition with other women, that maybe women don't know what we're talking about, that we're hysterical. And we can say, I know that I don't actually feel those things, but I still have to untangle these ideas within me. And it's totally fine to say that. And we're all comfortable with that conversation. But then what happens is that same group of white women who is used to saying, I am not a misogynist, but I have misogyny within me, suddenly clams up at the idea of saying, I am not racist, but I have racism within me. I and have I have racism. Yeah. I have internalized racism. I have racist ideas inside of me. And that yeah. was such an excellent way to frame it because so many, especially, and we're talking about white, white feminists here right now because we are getting in the way of inclusive feminism that mm-hmm. includes all women all colors, all facts of life, all the intersectionality. And, you know, to go, oh, no, 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 but I'm I'm not racist. Trust me, I'm not racist. 
is a disservice because it's not true. I, Misty Stinnett, I have internalized ideas of racism within me that I'm mm-hmm. working to untangle. I am not yeah. a racist, but I have those inside me. And we're kidding ourselves if we say <laughs> otherwise, because here's the thing. She, she uses this other metaphor. It's so beautiful. It's like, look, you may not be the one poisoning the air, but just by breathing, you're breathing in toxic fumes. That's so right. you have this toxicity inside of you, even though you're not the one putting it out into the world. Yes. So, yeah. And she talks about her own experience, you know, trying uh, and and a lot of the backlash that she's gotten from trying to be a, a white woman who elevates the voices of women of color and how that... Um, can be seen as like, well, why should you be the face of the movement? And she really gets into these really um, nitty gritty ideas. And I thought it was, and it it doesn't have a neat answer, you know, of yeah. how to be the best ally and, and the things that you'll come up against. But like, God, was it a helpful chapter to read. Um, so I, this book spoke to me in so many ways. And, and, and Glennon does acknowledge her privilege her bias, um, you know, she taught she has chapters on raising kids, on relationships, on loving yourself, on yeah. her own experience with eating disorders. Like it really is such a beautiful memoir, especially coming from someone who had such a shift from heteronormative, um, typical Christianity, mommy blogger to sort of liberated lesbian with a completely different family structure who um, is still trying to heal herself every day. So that is a very brief overview of Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Oh my gosh, great job. Thank you. And and if you want to learn more about her, you can visit her website at mamastery.com and that'll be in show notes. So Misty, did this book need to be written? I feel that it did. Mm-hmm. I have not ever read the perspective of a woman who has shifted so radically from one end of these these societal constructs, at least in America, what we're supposed to uh, ascribe ascribe to all the way to the other and and name so beautifully what that experience was like, like how she feels now, how she survived it, what got her into those sort of cages in the first place. I yeah. I had never read a book like this perspective. So there might be others out there that are just as powerful, but I haven't, yeah. I, I don't know of them yet. Yeah. Well, so, also, yes. it, you know, it is a memoir. It's such a, and she is incredibly open, incredibly, incredibly open. And that that is very brave. That's a lot of courage. Yeah. And I also think, I also think as far as her own story goes, it's really important that she wrote this book because she goes back to say, like, I was trying to make sense of why my marriage fell apart the way it did. And I tried to paint myself as frigid to sort of like soften my husband's cheating so that it would make sense that it was this larger system and da, 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 you know, and she really calls herself out in her, you know, in one of her other books, she's, she starts a chapter with like, I was born broken. And then in this book, she goes, that is horse shit. I was born mm-hmm. perfectly wonderful into a broken world. And I was like, yeah. 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 Um, is this book, I'm going to go a little out of order. Is this book practical Patty or woo woo? You know, it's super woo woo, but not at all 
in the new age way that typically repulses me. It is <laughs> right because it's 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 one of those things where she has she talks a lot more about life philosophies mm-hmm. and larger dynamic systems that contribute to a social order versus like count down five, four, three, two, one and start the dishes. You know, so it right. it, it's interesting because I actually did find it really I found the ideas and concepts to be really practical to consider applying to my life, but it's not a step-by-step guide. It's an overall like philosophy shift, food for thought. And you mentioned that this book is a must read, at least some chapters for every, every white woman. And you've mentioned that for everybody who's a woman or who identifies as a woman, um, who is this book terrible for? White supremacists. Um, evangelicals evangelicals actually you know what I think this book could be really good for evangelicals who have never questioned their beliefs and this book is so good for any anybody who is looking who is at a a a junction of their life where they are maybe looking at uh, they're feeling a lot of discontent with the traditional structures that they Mm -hmm. have been told should work, whether that's like, hey, my family structure isn't working or or I'm a man. It could be a dude who is going through a divorce and is feeling a lot of guilt about leaving his spouse. And maybe reading this would be a comfort to learn different ways that structures work or that families are whole or if you're raising daughters. Misty, was that I a- <laughs> just figured out why I struggle with Glennon Doyle. Tell me, tell me. The thing that I loved was when she was talking about when she met Abby and how she kind of was goofing on herself. I'm like, what was I doing? I stood up. I stood up in a room full of people. This woman who never met me. I struggle with, and this is because this is not how, I'm a person who takes what I do seriously and I do not take myself seriously as I think you can understand. (laughs) Um, but often thank you often when I see somebody will send me something from Glennon's it's on like her daily Facebook and it's like a 12 minute long speech of her sitting talking by herself to not even she's like cuddled up in this tiny ball and she's just like good morning moms I just and I I I know she's being open and authentic, but my interpretation is that she's taking herself very seriously and she may not, but that's how I'm reading it. And it makes me bananas. It's so, you know what? She definitely does take herself very seriously and has clearly been through a lot in her life. That's her very right. serious, but, that's her right but to do so. she, but she is super self-deprecating and and aware throughout the book. And I actually found it had a really good, it wasn't laugh out loud jokes, but it had a sense of humor. Like she yeah. has a sense of humor about herself. Like she's like, I became a writer so that I would never have to interact with another human being. When someone rings my doorbell, I think like, why are you here to murder my family? Like who would do such a thing as to ring a doorbell? And it's really I, funny. Yeah. I think she's, so her delivery is often different. I feel like Brene Brown is what you see is what you get. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And I think for me, there's a disconnect between the very like serious intonation 
and like close and like we have to really come together and then sometimes like the very kind of silly things that she's saying so that is on me I'm taking full accountability and ownership of that that it just doesn't resonate with me but also I see how it does resonate with people who haven't had the opportunity or the benefit of listening to these kind of ideas and thoughts and how revelatory it may seem or just to hear somebody say it out loud yeah and I, I completely agree with what you're saying you know uh, Brene feels like you're having dinner with a friend and yeah. Glennon feels like, okay, I'm going to sit down and listen to this formal Ted talk. Like I bought tickets to a speech and I'm going to listen to it. Yeah. Do you still know my shoulders go yeah. down with you? Yes. Yes. Saying that. <laughs> I've just been like this the whole time. Yeah. Lisa's been full, full clench, clench, uh, deaf clench one is happening. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. But I think, but I think there's a time, I think there's a time and place for all different yes. experiences like that. So if you've had enough of the, like, you know, Brene definitely talks about deep subjects, but if you've had enough of the sort of like lighter, who are we as humans, what's shame like, and you want to move into some like deep family shit, read this book. Yes. Yes, I feel so much more centered right now than I have. So that's great. Okay, great. So um, my other question to you is, did you put anything into practice from this book? (laughs) Oh, Lisa. Uh, Yeah. I put it into practice before I read it. And actually looking back, I discovered that I have a pattern of letting things burn when they need to. Um, I Good for you. Yeah. So the, the most recent thing is, I mean, I finally acknowledged my discontent and dared to imagine a truer and more beautiful life for myself when I left my six and a half year relationship last year. And by the time this episode comes out, I will have just passed the one year mark of that relationship ending. And It's tough because I sat there and wrestled with everything that she talks about. I looked at my partner and went, this is an amazing human being. My God, like, isn't this good enough? Isn't this relationship wonderful enough? Isn't, aren't the places we're moving or not moving good enough? And it was the scariest, the scariest scariest decision to leave and it has brought me (laughs) a year of some of the most beautiful and turmoily experiences of my life all at the same time I'm still grieving this stuff is not easy but I you know I also I also when I moved to Los Angeles I dared to dream a beautiful and more true version of my life. I let my Same. entire lur- life, my entire lurf in Orlando. <laughs> my whole lurf. Some people say toilet like turlet. I do. I miss my turlet. Um, I'm on the turlet. I'll have to call you back. I'm on the turlet. Except now you and I have gotten to the place where you don't call me back. You're just like, I'm on the toilet. And I'm like, let, I'm it, let it rip. Let it rip. But yeah. And then and then I, I had a very big, very fancy job on a hit show. And I was on it for four seasons. And I left. 
And then after that, I left another big hit show in a job people would kill for to take a year and a half off and discover who I am. Well, so are you. You moved from Chicago to here to become a working actor and you fucking did it. And before that, I quit my very cushy consulting job to become a full-time improviser, which makes zero dollars. Right. But like, and, and what was your experience like? Like you literally let that burn and you sat there and said, well, shouldn't this be good enough? Shouldn't I be grateful? I started therapy and I, that was what, that was when I started therapy. It was terrifying. And let me ask you a personal question that you don't have to answer. Let's pretend for a second you never left. Let's pretend that you convinced yourself that it is good enough. Oh, Lise, your whole body, po- she just melted into the floor in the saddest way. Like, how 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 discontent are your insides if you'd stayed? So sad. Like, I am incredibly privileged in that I am born cisgender and heterosexual and have not had to face any of the discrimination or like the anxiety about, you know, expressing my true self in that way. But it is, it is an ounce compared to that, but it is the only thing I can approximate when I think about people not feeling like they can express themselves fully and just imagining like this life ahead of you that is not at all what you want. And dreading it. Like there were days that I wished I would be lightly tapped by a bus so that I wouldn't be hurt, but I didn't have to go to work. Like that's, and it wasn't that they were bad people. It was a wonderful place to work. It was just not right at all. It was just not right. Oh, honey, you're going to make me cry. I just, that, that is exactly the kind of discontentment that she's talking about. That, yeah, that is and you had a good job. Oh my God. I was making, so it made, it let me buy my first home, you know, like with help from my dad. Like it, it, yes. It so and you were things. doing everything that you were told you should do. And, and could you ever have imagined the no. year that you had last year when you were sitting there? No. <laughs> <laughs> like that wasn't even in my dreams. Like I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live, which you couldn't pay me to take that job right now. Cause it's the, hardest least paid job in show business. You know what I mean? Like what I'm doing is, is so much more fun for me. It fits me better. And like, yeah, I had to be willing to burn those things. Like I do love that she said, I wrote those memos in sand. Like I burn those memos and I make new agreements. I'm kind of making an amalgam of everything, but like, you know, I burned down that nobody in my family is an artist, you know, like I burned that down that, and, and I burned down, this idea that I had to stay in Chicago because I didn't have a job out here. And I just, I just, I have burned, I have burned so many and it's terrifying, you know? And so I like that she acknowledges that it's incredibly terrifying and difficult and that it doesn't always end up wonderful. Like it doesn't for some people, you know, it really doesn't. It doesn't. And yet there is, I don't know how to describe it, but in doing this extremely difficult work over and over. Cause it's a, it's a constant choice to say, I'm yeah. going to continue to live authentically. I'm going to continue to do this. I mean, I have thought about going back to school a hundred times this month, you know, like how <laughs> can I That's three get times a, a day. an MBA and make girl. Yeah. Okay. Well, in that case, it's probably 500 times uh, this month, but, um, um, but the way, 
the way my insides feel, it's so hard to describe it, but there is like an inner peace and yeah. a weight. And I don't, I don't mean like a heaviness. I mean like a weight that makes me feel grounded and centered yes. because I've made these decisions. And it's my touch. It's my touchstone that I keep going back to when I go, Oh my God, I never should have left my relationship. I miss him so much. Yeah. I, sh- I should be in Florida with my family, you know, insert whatever fearful regret here. It's the thing that I keep going back to but I wasn't happy and I'm giving myself a chance to be happy now. So I love that you acknowledge that. It is so hard in that it's, it's like a heft, not a, not a weight, but a heft. it's like a certainty and it feels comforting. It's like a weighted blanket. It is. It's like a weighted blanket. Do you remember when you gave me a weighted blanket? Hold on. Lisa gave me a weighted blanket, like, like six or eight months ago. And she, she gave it to me and she went, look, I love it. It is just too much blanket. It was too much. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you what's happened since. I already had a weighted blanket. Now mine is 17 pounds and it's like a full size. So that 17 pounds is stretched across quite a bit of material. Lisa gave me this incredible blanket that is half the size of the current one I have. And it's 25 pounds and it's got a fuzzy, it's got a fuzzy cover. But let me tell you, I never slept so well as I did under your weighted blanket, but I already had a this other weighted blanket and it didn't make sense to have two and it was so big and bulky to give away. I gave it to my sister. Nice. Heather tried it and said, oh my God, this is amazing. And then like an hour later texted me and she was like, it hurts. Like it hurts to lay under the blanket. <laughs> so, so she gave me the blanket back and I gave it to my friend Brian, who yes. has given us some content for the podcast. Who's amazing. He's the one who recommended the the seven seconds. Give it seven seconds to put your foot in your I mouth. I love that thing. So Brian is six foot four. And like a, he's like a dude, he's like a hunky dude. And I give him this blanket and he texts me and he's like, it hurts. Like I can't, it's too much blanket. My friend Missy needs a full on like, like a press. She needs yes. a press. It's like, it's the Salem witch trials and I'm the one guy who got killed and I just keep saying more weight. Yes, um, yes. And so I finally gave it to my friend Allison, and I am waiting for her to tell me it's too much blanket. But just so you know, it's made its way around, and it's just in a constant cycle of, like, too much blanket. Anyway, with that light note, everybody, please, one last plug. Please, even we... We will always ask your permission to read anything that you share with us on minisodes. We will never we will never share things without your permission. You can let us know if you want to change details or your name or not be read at all. But whether you want to share something with us that we read on a minisode or if it's just to share with us, I'm really really interested in the stories that you might have about what you let burn. Yeah. What was a moment that you moved into a more authentic reality for yourself or as she says stepped into the abyss between what you know is a truer possibility and leaving the life that's no longer true enough Ooh, yes misty please tell us listeners we would love to hear it and misty thank you for helping me cry because i completed the stress cycle you seem your posture has changed your facial expressions are more relaxed and And can i be honest with you for 
the end, for like 30 minutes, the last 30 minutes of this episode, Zoe has been standing at my side, staring at me, making me put my hand on her. And then I oh. cried and now she's laying down and she's like, God, it's so hard being a therapy dog. I'm like, but you're not a therapy dog, but kind of she is. I love how she can sense your emotions, even when you're not entirely 100%. sure like what you're reacting 100%. to. That is so beautiful. 100%. 100%. Oh my God. May your authentic, true... Uh, imaginations of what can be and all the things you burn be be abundant. abundant. Bye. Bye. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.